0: felt like most of you showed up because you knew I was going to preach. So. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm super grateful for that. Um, a little bit of a, of a disclaimer, I was talking with Aurelia on um, Thursday, and I'd spent a few weeks preparing for this sermon, and as I w- had, was reading back through it, um, I thought, oh gosh, I think this might be a downer. And, uh, but Aurelia said she feels that way every Sunday. It's normal. And we said, well, you know, life can be kind of a downer sometimes. But I also know that some of you don't know me real well, and so I want you to know that my, everything that I say here today comes from a place of um, compassion and desiring mercy and really just self-reflection. So hopefully something I say um, resonates with you, and if not, just, you know, let it go. Um, so, my personal theology has changed drastically over the past 10 years, and quite frankly, lately I don't find myself real drawn to reading the Bible. Um, but I got scheduled uh, to preach think, uh, you know, very gratefully, and our church follows the lectionary, which is made up of scripture, which comes from the Bible, and so here I am about to deliver a sermon on Jesus and his life as we know it in the book of Luke. David Benner, who we just received this from, he's a contemplative author of several books, including The Gift of Being Yourself, says this about meeting Jesus in the Gospels. Gospel meditation provides an opportunity to enter specific moments in Jesus' life and thereby share his experience. Shared experience is the core of any friendship, and spirit-guided meditation on the life of Jesus provides this possibility. When I do read scripture, I enjoy the voice translation, which is what George and I both um, read from this morning, which just puts the words into story form, and that's the, uh, the translation that helps me to get into being able to experience um, Jesus and use my imagination. Okay, so during the meditation, we imagine that Jesus might have been, fe- what he might have been feeling on his walk to his arrest and violent killing in Jerusalem. What did you all come up with? I want to hear it. Nothing. Feelings. What? It's a hard road. It's a hard road. Yep. I think um, for me, I came up with anxious, afraid, grieved, nervous, determined, reflective. I imagine him feeling out of sorts, even while fulfilling his purpose. I think of him reflecting on his mission and proclaiming the good news that the kingdom of God is near. He did that over and over and over, and wondering if he had gotten through to his disciples and followers. And then his disciples clearly don't get it. And people want to follow him, but he wonders if they truly understand the cost involved. I can just imagine imagine him thinking, I am on my way to die for this mission, literally. And you are worried about funerals and saying goodbye. And when I step into this story like that, when I put myself into his shoes, I can understand his seemingly brash responses to his disciples and his starstruck followers. Right? Like sometimes we read the scripture and it's like, Jesus, what are you saying? But what I hear Jesus saying is this. The kingdom that you are waiting for is here. It is now. If you want it, you have to live differently. You have to become uncomfortable. I have not come to bring you comfort. I have come for the broken hearted and forgotten ones, and I am literally dying for you to enter the kingdom of God. While Jesus is no longer walking the earth like he once did, our tradition holds that Jesus rose from the dead is very much alive and human. And his mission has not changed. It is still all about establishing his kingdom of God on earth through humans. And as much as I have questioned everything about the existence of God and the validity of Christianity, the one thing that I keep coming back to is this idea of kingdom. It's both mysterious and tactile. It requires surrender and faith. And when people are living it, Transformation occurs. The best description that I have found of kingdom is in the Sermon on the Mountain or the Beatitudes, which George read. We typically hear from the Matthew passage, but for this sermon, I reference the Luke passage since we're traveling through Luke. Um, it's going to be on the screen. Um, I just want you to be able to reference it, but I'm going I'm to be on the downer part. <laughs> Sorry, which is the end, verses 24 through 26. That's the beginning part. I wanna go, go ahead and go to the next slide. I wanna just, let me just say really quickly that beginning part is what is, that's the kingdom. And that is what is hope for the people who are on the border for anyone who feels alone or um, is being mistreated or oppressed, and life just doesn't really seem to be going their way at all, which I I believe most of us can empathize with that. But this last part, I think, is where I really needed to um, have a deeper look. And it says, all you who are rich now you are in danger, for you have received your comfort in full. All you who are full now, you are in danger, for you shall be hungry. And you who laugh now, you are in danger, for you shall grieve and cry. And when everyone speaks well of you, you are in danger, for their ancestors spoke well of the false prophets too. A little levity, the good news Is that out of all of those, um, the last one, because outside of this church, some people sometimes refer to us as heretics, so I think we're doing quite well in that area. But what really struck me was my desire to live a kingdom life, and wondering what Jesus would say makes it difficult for us to enter the kingdom of God now. Other beliefs and behaviors may come up as true for you, and I encourage you to explore that. But for di- today, I want to take a look at how these sins, and Fran, I was hoping you could tell us your definition of sin real quick. Anything that impedes love, that impedes love are some that Jesus might address today. I'm glad you knew that without me prepping you. <laughs> okay, a side note, sort of like I said at the beginning, but I want to be really clear that I'm not talking about being accepted by God or going to heaven when we die. God's love is ours to receive no matter what, and I'm personally not really interested in spending much time thinking or talking about life after death. When Jesus talks about the kingdom, he is talking about God's original desire for creation. He's talking about people living in a free and liberated life, tethered to the divine, and working in their giftedness, sharing what they have and receiving from others and from the earth what they need. All people, regardless of race, gender, socioeconomic status, disability, or ability, all people, Everywhere. Okay. Disclaimer ends there. Woo! Okay, so um, the first one that I want to address is, all who are rich now, you are in danger for you have received your comfort in full. And I just want us to realize that we are on a continuum of wealth, all of us. We are either slightly rich or very rich, <laughs> but we're, we're in there. Um, And we live in an individualistic society. So when I think about this idea of rich and what could keep us from receiving love or impeding love is our individualism. We as a country worship consumerism. I bought a new shirt for this sermon. (laughs) And individualism at its worst keeps us out of a burden bearing community. Living in a burden-bearing community gives us a window into the very real struggles and pain of those around us. We in turn develop compassion, empathy, and a broader versus narrower worldview. Our church is an excellent example of a burden-bearing community when we show up to paint each other's houses, to landscape a friend's yard, um, or create a meal train for someone who's just had a baby or lost a loved one. As the Imago Dei, God's image bearers, God bestows upon us a desire, like inserts a desire to bear each other's burdens and find creative ways to share resources and meet needs. And the only way that we get to feel that desire is if we know of the needs of those around us. An incredible example of this is the people of Houston after Hurricane Harvey. I have so I had so many things to choose from, but I thought let's go with Texas. So. After Hurricane Harvey um, destroyed hundreds of thousands of homes, displacing more than 30,000 people and prompting more than 17,000 rescuees, the people of Texas and other communities, other states, came together with their resources to provide relief. Um, The photos and stories of people coming together to help and rescue their neighbors are incredibly moving. And to me, they are a picture of the kingdom of God. Nobody cares what political party somebody is affiliated with when they're coming to rescue when you're drowning, doesn't matter. They don't care um, about what color your skin is. They don't care what neighborhood you were living in before your house got swept away. And I believe that those people are changed forever. Um, And I believe that those who were able to use their resources to go and rescue experienced um, what it feels like to be full of the Spirit. So imagine what our world could look like if we rejected individualism and purposefully pursued a more dependent relationship with our neighbors. Nobody ever wants to be needy, but neediness opens us up to receiving we would do well to mirror the lifestyle of those who have little. One example, again in Texas, is the Community First Village. I'll just leave the pictures up there. Okay, next one. Is all you who are full now, you are in danger for you shall be hungry. So this one, after some you know, imagination, I labeled covert greed. This one is closely connected to individualism and for me, even more dangerous. In my 20s, I was married and had a successful real estate career. I was also a very unhealthy Enneagram type three and my identity was completely wrapped up in appearing successful to those around me. My husband and I had a very comfy, large six-figure income and I always wanted nicer. A nicer house, a fancier car, a name brand wardrobe, and my name in the list of Denver's top real estate agents. It was sick. I was sick with greed. And all of that changed in the blink of an eye when, in one year, I lost my marriage, a baby boy, my career, two houses, and all of our money. And it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. I became completely dependent upon God and the generosity of my community. I learned to live on very, very, very little, and I easily entered the kingdom of God and all its beauty. Nothing was taken for granted. Every small blessing was acknowledged. It was absolutely glorious. And I'm guessing some, if not all of you, have been there and some of you may even be there now. I know it is difficult and that fear can creep in when the bills outweigh the bank account. And I hope that you are being shared with and supported the way that you should be. And if not, let us know. Eventually the point came when I knew it was time to be more financially stable and challenged at work. It is hard to explain the trepidation that came with accepting a tremendous pay raise. I was worried that it would affect my deeply moving and inspiring spiritual life. And perhaps it has. Because I find myself astonished at how I want to hold on to my paycheck and how much time I invest planning how I will spend my next bonus. It all seems so normal. Everybody does that, right? But the truth is, it is covert greed because I'm giving and I'm serving, but I'm still hoarding. So I know what Jesus meant when he said it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Because we have to enter the kingdom like this. And that means that we have to be willing to lose all that we've gained. And who of us is really willing to lose everything? Okay. And finally, all you who laugh now You are in danger, for you shall grieve and cry. Well, this one stumped me, because I love to laugh, and I think laughing is fantastic. And doesn't it mean that we have joy in our lives when we laugh? So what is Jesus actually saying here? Could he be referring to those who laugh carelessly about their status? Who laugh because they're in a position of power? I summarize this sin as laughing, the desire to be right. Because, in my experience, it's that desire which can lead to the addiction of being in the right camp, or on the right side, or absolutely not wrong. The desire to be right keeps us in a box and handcuffed to a belief system that fuels our need to feel superior. And, God, do I love to feel superior? What can happen in deconstruction from a restrictive and constrictive belief system like we are all doing? Um, I'm saying we're all deconstructing, not that we're about to do the other thing, but um, a restrictive or constrictive belief system many things, but I want to just acknowledge that it, it can also be from some forms of evangelicalism and it's the accidental creation of a fundamentalist theology, doctrine, or worldview from swinging too far on the pendulum of thinking. Holding space for being wrong or not yet seeing things clearly allows us to remain humble and in turn allows the spirit to lead us to truth as well as compassion for those with whom we disagree. And Jesus is the ultimate example of this. Jesus vehemently opposed any mistreatment of people, the oppression of outsiders, and prejudice toward the poor and the sick. And yet, we find him engaging with the very people he opposed. He engaged in conversation and continually spoke up for the outcasts. He hung out with the tax collectors who are modern day thieves. This is like us hanging out with anti-LGBTQ people and those who want to keep refugees out. If we want to enter the kingdom of God, we have to leave our comfort zones of rightness and engage our enemies. Well, I don't have a pretty red bow to wrap this up in. As long as we live in a society focused on power and consumerism, we will be walking a path of tension toward the kingdom of God. Because we are rich, it is harder for us to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to fit through the eye of the needle. And so I believe the antidote is resistance. In order to follow Jesus into the kingdom of God, we must resist societal norms. So share your home, your tools, your clothes, your food, and your time with your neighbors. Live generously. Don't hold on to what you've earned so tightly. Don't laugh at those who are not yet deconstructing. Share the table with the ones you believe to be wrong. Be open to their experience and imagine what it is that keeps them in their belief system. And consider that you don't have it all figured out yet either. I'm looking in the mirror as I'm saying that. I'm so grateful for a community that has become like family, where we can wrestle with our beliefs and not feel ashamed about it. Pray with me. God, thank you for having mercy on us. Thank you for your tenderness and understanding toward us. Be with us as we meditate on the way of Jesus and put into practice the resistance of societal norms and help us recognize the kingdom life when we experience it. Amen.